Hey, welcome back. Thanks for tuning in to our special episode of the limited mini-series called Learn with Shopify. These episodes were recorded in person with Shopify merchants as they share their secrets to success and how you can do the same. Hope you enjoy. There's a lot of brands out there right now that are just blending. They just go out and they go, we're going to sell to everyone. We've never taken that approach. Um, Our approach has always been to really define who our audience is going to be and then go after them. Welcome to Learn with Shopify. I'm Adam LeVinter. What started as a way to create some custom-made jewelry as souvenirs during a backpacking trip actually kickstarted the journey of building a profitable multi-million dollar jewelry design studio. This is how Shane Vitali Foran started Compound Studio, and he's here with us today sharing how he built multiple brands, found production partners, expanded into retail, and managed to build an eight-figure business without seeking funding from investors. Shane, welcome to Learn with Shopify. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Um, when we were talking earlier, you know, one thing that stood out to me is that you don't necessarily have this background uh, as an entrepreneur. You, you studied poli-sci, you studied marketing, you had some experiences with Red Bull, but way back when in grade six, you said you knew back then you wanted to be a founder. I don't think I knew I wanted to be a founder. I don't even think I knew what that was in grade six. I just had this idea that I wanted to design and sell things to people. I was a big Lego fanatic. That's, I think, where it started. And I thought, you know, I can build some pretty cool stuff with Lego. Maybe I could build something else and people would like it. So Compound, we'll talk about Compound and the structure of Compound in a moment. But before we do that, let's go back to the origin story of Vitaly, which started circa 2010 back in Bali, was it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It happened really organically. I I wasn't planning to start a business. I mean, I, I had forgotten this idea of becoming a founder Went and studied poli-sci, thought maybe I'd become a lawyer. Uh, really glad I didn't go that route, but <laughs> no offense to lawyers. Um, but yeah, I just uh, was backpacking. I saw some people making some really cool jewelry. Nothing I would really wear, but you know they were clearly talented. And I drew something effectively on a napkin. It was really that kind of basic um, two-finger ring, had it made for me, and thought it was pretty cool. Stuck around, kept refining it, brought them home as gifts for friends, and kind of realized I had something. But I think I mentioned it to you earlier when we were chatting. I didn't really have a plan of starting a business. I really just thought maybe I could pay for another backpacking trip. And I literally started slinging them out of a backpack hmm. for the first few months. And then I was like, you know, there might be something here. Maybe I could have a little side hustle. So one thing to sell out of a backpack, another thing to start a business online. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I went online pretty quickly, though, just because I wasn't sure, you know, what else to do. I, I think I might have used like I don't know, one of those old kind of very simple builders. I remember somebody sent me a screenshot recently of the initial website. It's pretty hilarious. It'd actually probably be trendy at this point because it was so bad. (laughs) So vintage. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. You incubate this business and you didn't have much money. You were saying you took your first $10,000 from a friend of yours. Yeah, so I started with $3,000. It was the last out of my student credit line. I sent that all off to Bali, just had as many rings made as I could. And uh, when they showed up, I started selling them. But that was kind of when I first started learning about cash flow. Um, you know, you're saying you don't, I didn't have any training in entrepreneurship, and that's true. But, you know, you can go to school and study it all you want. You still, you know, you learn best by, you know, trial by fire kind of thing. And uh, yeah, I quickly realized I needed more cash. So my roommate at the time, who's now my business partner, Jason, said, you know, I have 10 grand, I can throw that in. It actually took three months before I was willing to take it from him. I was kind of sketched out about the idea of working with a close friend, mm-hmm. um, but he eventually talked me into it because we're both very logical people that can kind of talk through things. And, uh, you know, 
that was the start of the story. He's still your partner today, right? Yep. So I think a lot of people would be interested in what makes uh, a good partnership work amongst friends. And you guys have this history. So how did you make it work over time? Yeah, I mean, it hasn't been without its challenges. Like we've definitely had moments where, you know, there's some explosiveness. But um, in the end, it's worked out really well because I think we both understand that we need each other. We're both very different. His strengths are my weaknesses and vice versa. And I think that it's been a really strong balance that way. Um, he's very operational. He's very today in the moment, you know, understands what needs to be executed. Whereas I'm a lot more, I'm consistently thinking about the future and the vision and what needs to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and that dynamic has just been kind of perfect all the way through. Mm-hmm. Did you have uh, the vision for Vitali as a brand when you first started manufacturing these rings? Like, how did you start to expand? How did you start to build the brand over time? No, I had no vision at all, so. (laughs) Weirdly, I I had my backpack that I was slinging them out of with me, and I was in a store on Queen Street, and I knew the owner was in there, so I just asked her, you know, is this something that you would ever stock? And she bought, I think I had 11 rings on me. She bought them all off me on the spot. I didn't even have pricing, really, and she just said, you know, what's your actual price? Okay, well, wholesale price would be about 50% of that. You know, go to Staples, get me a receipt book and and write me a, a uh, invoice. And that's kind of how I started. So after that happened, I realized, okay, I might be onto something here. Um, and that's actually when I, you know, decided that I should take that 10,000 from Jason and uh, started going from there. But at that point, I didn't even have a brand name. Like I wasn't thinking about that kind of thing. Um, so she said, you know, what's the brand? And I had Vitaly tattooed on the inside of my arm. It was long story, weird family history, but it was my last name. And I uh, thought, you know, that actually sounds pretty designer. I think I could just go with that. I mean, but it's it's worked well. It was the start of something very special. Yeah. Um, and, and you learn a lot as you start to incubate these brands over time, starting with Vitaly. Uh, tell me about the evolution of that brand and also how you start to iterate around this idea of incubating other brands, uh, which is sort of where you're at now with Compound Studio. Yeah, so like most of this company, it, it happened pretty organically. Uh, really what happened was when I started Vitaly, and I kind of realized that it was going to develop into a brand and that I needed to start thinking about an identity for it, it kind of found its own identity because I hadn't really set out with a plan. It had started to kind of find its own market in the electronic music world, in kind of the bar scene a little bit in the fashion community, even in the hip-hop community. And that wasn't my objective. I, I, it just did it naturally, and, and I thought that was great. And I was like, I'm not going to try to pull it from where it works. That said, I grew up on rock and roll and motorcycles and tattoo culture and uh, that kind of community. So I was like, you know, I kind of want to do something now that I have this skill set in the world that I know. Um, so I created Clocks and Colors. I really didn't think it was going to do much. I just thought it would be a cool little side project for me just something to uh, keep me satiated creatively, but it kind of rocketed out of the gates as well and quickly caught up to Vitaly and we just started growing them in tandem. What about um, this idea of building a brand, building a community around what you know versus what you think is going to resonate with the market? I mean, it sounds like you've had this success around creating something that you yourself would like and you yourself would resonate with. Do you think that's a good strategy for other entrepreneurs to follow? I think it's the best strategy. So with Vitaly, even though Clocks and Colors was a huge part of my lifestyle, at the time, I was also very into electronic music and, and you know, the things that the Vitaly brand was built around. 
Um, and when I started to feel that I wasn't anymore, I kind of handed the reins off to our, he's still the creative director, Zach Vitiello. Um, and he really started to build out the, the visual identity that you then saw over the following years. And he's since kind of continued to do that and, and you know, has pivoted as needed. Um, but it became a little bit more authentic to him, which was a good thing. Um, and that way I was able to stay focused on clocks and colors and keep it authentic to me. And I think it is really important. I think it's critical that you do that because you can, you know how to speak to that audience, right? Mm -hmm. Tell me the structure of Compound Studio now and what it looks like across all of these brands. What is the setup? Yeah. Okay. So it's, it's kind of complicated. Um, effectively Compound Studio is like the umbrella. Mm -hmm. And then we have three brands, soon to be four brands under that umbrella. So you have you have Vitaly, the first brand, Clocks and Colors. Uh, we launched another brand about two and a half years ago called Etta Love. And then we're launching another brand, I think in two months, called Every Heart. Most of them have completely independent teams now. That's something that we've been working on. So if you looked at the business a year ago, everyone worked on every brand. Uh, and that worked for a long time, but we've kind of reached this scale where it's just not possible anymore. And people started to pick their favorites. You know, you can see that certain people identify more with one than the other. And so we started to try to, uh, I guess, silo them a little bit. Mm -hmm. So you still have people that cover all of them, like Joe. Um, he's the chief marketing officer, but he's also the president for Vitaly. So chief marketing officer for all of Compound. He oversees all of the marketing. Um, but he's also very focused on the Vitaly brand in terms of direction and, you know, day-to-day -day execution. Um, but generally, it's, you know, people are, are focused on their own brands now, full teams. Mm -hmm. um, is there... Like as you've started to incubate these brands, are there components of the brand building process that are consistent across launching each of these? Like, do they go through the same sort of iterative incubation process or do you treat each of them as sort of unique launches? Every sequential launch has gone better than the prior. And it's because we take everything we've learned and we make sure that it's applied right from the jump. So, yeah, there's definitely a formula, but that formula is always evolving and improving. We're at a point now where there's so much scale, there's so many people involved, there's so many moving parts that we've actually started building out our own software as well, um, just to ensure that we can maintain consistency in those formulas, make sure that operationally things are going to take place the way that they need to. Um, so everything from a really, really robust PLM system to uh, um, more project management-based systems, et cetera. So Every Heart's actually going to be a really interesting kind of unique test for us because this is the first time where we're actually rolling out a brand from the jump that's completely siloed in terms of the team. So we brought in a president. We brought in a separate creative director. We've never done this, so it's our first test. It's really the first brand where we're going to be truly incubating it and kind of acting more as people that provide a platform, provide a infrastructure, and then we oversee it. So... We'll see how that goes. But ideally, that's what we'll continue to do in the future because, as I mentioned to you before, I see myself as a builder. I really like that early stage process. And I think that this will allow us to do that. That's very cool. Um, I want to double click on something. So you mentioned the PLM systems and software and sort of that operational piece. But the other piece that I'm thinking about, especially from a brand building perspective, is like what are those pillars of building a successful brand? And I think a lot of folks that are listening or watching going to want to know, like, are, are there big rocks that I need to ensure that I tackle to ensure that this brand that I'm going to launch uh, is going to be a success? 
So what could you share on that front? Yeah, absolutely. I think the biggest thing for us is really thinking about the archetypes. So, you know, when we start thinking about a brand, we really hyper-focus on the identity. I find that a lot of people, they go out and they just want to reach everybody. You know, one of the things that we've started using as a term in the office, I think somebody probably heard it somewhere, but we call it blanding. There's a lot of brands out there right now that are just blanding. They just go out and they go, we're going to sell to everyone. We've never taken that approach. Um, our approach has always been to really define who our audience is going to be and then go after them. Um, and like I said, even early on with Vitaly, I had an idea of who that audience would be. I was wrong, um, but I started to learn how to ensure that it does reach the audience that we want to from the jump. Mm -hmm. So identity, uh, audience, or target customer, customer archetype, uh, those are important pillars. Yep. What about studying the market? Do you look at trends? Are there, um, are you watching sort of consumer behavior and, and having that influence the brand direction at all? Yeah, for sure. I mean, not, maybe not in the traditional sense. Like if you were to go talk to a lot of the big consulting firms, we're not doing it the way they're doing it. Um, I think that's been a big part of my role from the jump. I've always been big on watching what's actually happening in real life. I'm not a huge consumer of things on the internet. Like I don't spend a lot of time looking at Instagram, et cetera, to figure out trends. I really honestly just spend time walking around the city. And I know that sounds kind of silly, but I find that it's kind of the most authentic representation of what's happening um, in the world right now. And so that's kind of my market research. I just look around and go, okay, what are people starting to do right now? Where does that naturally kind of go from here? Um, pay a lot of attention to things like music. I find music is a huge indication of what's going to happen in fashion. Um, so, you know, if I start to hear that grunge is trending a little bit, it's a pretty good idea of what's going to trend in terms of uh, product taste. So I can start looking at like the jewelry that people were wearing in the grunge era. And I know that people are going to start searching for that soon. Perfect example right now, pop punk is starting to become trendy. Um, you know, you're seeing a huge revival of a lot of the bands that I grew up on, like, you know, the bands like Blink-182, but you're seeing it modernized with people like Machine Gun Kelly and even Avril Lavigne has a huge comeback right now, which is super cool to see. And so because of that, I know what to think about in terms of style. So music as a leading indicator, that's very interesting. Do you draw inspiration from anything other than music? What, where do you draw inspiration for, for these brands? Music was the biggest one for sure. Mm -hmm. Early days, especially with Vitaly, it was architecture as well. Hmm. Um, just for the aesthetic, if you look at, you know, the first probably six or seven years, everything was very, very simple, very structural. And, and that was typically because a, I wasn't really skilled enough to do the really organic stuff that we're doing now, but B, I've just always been really into architecture. Like it, it's just something that's always excited me. I've always dreamt about designing and building my own homes and, um, you know, renovating the interiors of older ones, et cetera. So that was a huge inspiration, but nothing in terms of, you know, a big kind of grandiose, uh, like this is where I pull all my inspiration from. I'm, I'm going to guess that you're, you're not somebody that pays too much attention to competition or other brands that are already in market. No. Um, do you think that founders should take a look at the market and see how saturated it is before they launch their brand? Or is it something that's sort of like instinctive in the sense that you sort of trust your gut, trust your instinct and go with how you feel. I'm a trust your gut guy, you know, and I know that a lot of people in the business world hate that, um, you know, especially people in the finance side of this world. Mm -hmm. But for me, my instincts have always served me best. Um, 
you know, if I start to see that the market is really saturated, I know that by the time I can bring out product that looks like that, I've already missed the window anyway. So, you know, certainly I'm, I'm paying attention to, to that to a point, but I'm not out there doing huge kind of studies around other competitors in our space. Like, of course, we're aware of who they are. Um, you know, we look at them from time to time. But in fact, I often actually tell my team to pay less attention. Um, shifting gears to the sourcing and manufacturing side of the business for a moment. So you, you launched with these these rings initially for Vitaly. You expand in, into other products. How did you find your suppliers? How did you find your manufacturers? There's this trend now where it's like, you should be totally transparent with who your suppliers are. And you have a lot of brands out there. And props to them for doing this, but they'll post who all their suppliers are. I can't even imagine doing that because of how much work it took to find ours. I'll never forget the first time that I went to China with like zero money. I'm, you know, in Shenzhen or Guangzhou trying to take the train, having no clue if I'm going to the right place. It was terrifying. It was like truly horrifying. Um, but, you know, the way that we did it initially was the classic way, you know, jumped on the internet, checked Alibaba, checked Google, did whatever we could and sent people emails. But I quickly realized that there were better ways to do it. Go to trade shows, start kind of casing several different uh, suppliers, etc. But to put it into perspective, before we found the main jewelry supplier for Vitaly, and we have several, but we have kind of a core supplier. Uh, we probably worked with over 20 factories. It was a nightmare. It was like a really, really rough process. So when people ask for my supplier, I'm like, I want to give you this because I know how much it sucks. But like, if they started to get in the way, slow down my supply, et cetera, like I couldn't deal with that. It's just too much to get there, you know? <laughs> like, did you narrow in ultimately on your key supplier that you were going to go with to help scale the business? Or do you still work with a number of suppliers? So the first supplier that we ever worked with for Clocks and Colors, we got really lucky. They're like family for us. So... Um, we were a small client for them at first and they were a factory, I think of 11 people. Last I heard there were 67 people and we're their only client now, um, which is cool. Um, and we have a really great relationship with them. With Vitaly, we had to just keep switching suppliers over and over and over again until we found the right one. Um, we now, you know, just so that we're not completely pot committed, we now continue to source and, and get products made from other factories just to kind of check quality, et cetera. But we still have yet to find anybody that really compares to them. I want to ask you about celebrities and influencers. Sure. Um, so you've got growth that's come to Vitaly and some of your other brands uh, off of these influencers and celebrities that are wearing different pieces. Two-part question. One, how did you find these influencers or celebrity partners? And how do you manage those relationships over time? Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of work, um, but we've been doing it for a long time. So I think it's become kind of natural for us. Um, we were really, really early to social media, like Instagram, for example, very, very early days. Um, and we realized quickly that, you know, we could pay for, at the time they weren't called influencers yet, right? Like we could pay a blogger or we could pay, um, you know, just a person with a huge following on social media to make a post and, and it would drive a ton of traffic. We realized over time that that strategy needed to change. There was a lot more competition. Bigger brands started realizing they could pay more, et cetera. Um, these days, we have built out a huge, huge, huge network of everyone from influencers to stylists, et cetera, um, that we just consistently seed with product. And it's kind of a, it, it's, it's a mutually beneficial relationship. You know, like if they continue to promote us, we continue to send them product. If not, 
you know, it's probably just not a relationship worth working on. But we have an entire team dedicated to that. And uh, it's a hugely important part of our strategy. As you've scaled the business, uh, obviously, cash flow, which we talked about early on, uh, still super important. Yep. You guys are uh, bootstrapped, mostly bootstrapped at this point. Yep. You've not taken any outside financing to this point. In total, we've taken 158000 So we raised 58000 early on, which to us at the time was the craziest amount of money. Like We built out a business plan and we were like, if we have 58000 we can survive for the next six months. We can do this, this, this. And we managed to do it. Um, I think back to, to our original business plan, it was like over 100 pages. It's hilarious. Just, you know, I got some template from my university and thought, okay, this is the way you do it. Um, I need to find that because it would be so funny. But yeah, we took that 58,000 and grew for a long time. Later on, we ended up taking a hundred grand at some point, not really for the cash, but just to bring that person into the business. Um, and yeah, outside of that, that's it. You know, we've sold some secondary, et cetera, but the business has grown on its own cash flow. Do you feel like that is still going to be viable as you scale up for this next chapter of the business? Do you feel pressure to raise funding? Our experience has been that it's really hard to put a ton of gasoline on this fire all at once. You know, you kind of hit, at least for us, we've found that we hit kind of these max points where we can't really scale anymore with it being responsible. Mm -hmm. Um, We're not out there like some companies we've seen where, you know, it's sales at all costs. Like they're just burning money on every single sale and hoping that lifetime value is going to save them. But, you know, for most of them, it doesn't. Um, We like to try to be profitable on first order. Um, and so for us to scale that way, we can continue to do it on cash flow. And if we were to go take a bunch of capital, that's actually been a challenge for us. We've had conversations before with people who would be strategic and we thought, okay, you know, maybe we'll take the capital, not so much because we need it, but having this partner would be great. Um, but their first question is, why don't you want to take more? Like, why don't you want to spend more? And they never want to hear that. It's like, we can't, like we, we literally can't spend more. The only thing we can think of right now to spend a large amount of money quickly is retail expansion, which is actually something we're looking at pretty seriously right now, though, because the Vitali store in Toronto is doing really, really well. Um, and they've recently made some changes that seem to have really stepped it up. Um, so now we're looking at LA and, and other locations for expansion. But, you know, outside of that, like, we don't want to be that company that takes $5 million in capital and just, you know, flushes it down the toilet, for lack of a better way to... So retail expansion... Um... Let's dive deeper into that for a moment. So what do you envision uh, that looking like over the short term? Like, is it the strategic placements of the Vitali brand in certain markets like Los Angeles? Um, does it look something, does it look like something different? How do you see it? Yeah, I think, you know, it's going to be different brand by brand. So we are starting off in LA for both of the both Clocks and Colors and Vitaly. Mm-hmm. Um, Edda Love is still a little bit too early on to be thinking about retail. Um, but from there, we'll be expanding the retail program to the cities that make the most sense by brand. So we'll actually go and heat map where our sales are coming from and then choose the location based on that. So, you know, for both Vitaly and Clocks, LA was by far the biggest market, but then Clocks starts to really grow in more locations in California. It starts to grow a lot in Texas, whereas Vitaly is a lot more in New York, for example. So we'll just be looking at, at what makes sense in that respect. Um, but you know, a lot of e-commerce brands and, and I don't even like to say e-commerce brands anymore because I feel like it's almost an insult to most brands these days, but most brands that were kind of native to, to the internet initially, 
Um, I think a lot of them are thinking about e-commerce or at least were as more like a showroom. We're not thinking about it that way. It can actually be a viable and profitable um, sales channel for us. So that's, you know, kind of how we're thinking about it. Like that would be one place we would take capital because we can scale it. And I think we can, you know, build that as a part of our business. A big part of the expansion is also looking at business efficiencies and you guys close down uh, elements of your business at a certain point, both wholesale and clothing. So what was the process of uh, closing those areas of the business down and why did you do it? Yeah, I don't know if I want to bore you with the process details. It's it's not a fun process, you know, making those decisions. I can tell you there was a lot of wholesale accounts that were not happy with us. And a lot of fans of our apparel, for example, that were wondering, you know, why would we ever ditch apparel when, you know, there's so many people that were in love with it. But at the end of the day, we realized that if we focused on our core competencies, or I like to call them superpowers, we were going to be a lot better off and it was going to improve the company culture. So we made some pretty big pivots, some pretty big changes. Um, I'm also a big believer in, in having humility and admitting like when certain things are just not the right fit um, and just walking away from them. So for us, the first thing was walking away from wholesale. Um, you know, I think people thought we were really crazy. We were selling to a lot of amazing retailers and, and it was sad to say goodbye to some of them. That's for sure. Um, you know, I, I don't even remember we were in six or 700 locations though, but you know, people thought we were crazy. They're like, how can you walk away from all those sales? And I think it only took four or five months after walking away for our online to catch up because there was just so much more momentum as a company. It allowed us to do a lot of things like weekly drops, for example, which was a huge part of our strategy. And, uh, you know, after doing that, we quickly realized there's probably more fat to cut. And that's when we actually made the decision to get out of apparel completely as well. Again, you know, another thing where people were like, you guys are absolutely nuts. Like this is, you know, half your business. And uh, same thing happened. The second we got out of apparel, we very quickly bounced back and and just found that it was an easier story to tell. People started to understand really who we were and, and what we were trying to do. And, and not just, you know, our customers, but also our team. You know, I think in terms of a culture, it just improved dramatically because people were able to focus. They weren't being pulled nine different directions. Um, which is a similar train of thought to siloing the brands. Mm -hmm. You know, we got to a point where, again, I think people started to feel like they were pulled too many places. So we started to kind of try to clean that up. Did you have to lay off at all during this process? Yeah. I mean, this is like one of the worst parts about, you know, being a founder. Um, We've had to do layoffs several times. There's, Mm -hmm. There's been multiple times. It hasn't been a steady upward curve. Sales have been steadily going up, but it's not always aligned with profit, right? So there's been quite a few periods where we were like, we might be done for, you know? <laughs> um, and unfortunately that made, you know, made us have to make some tough choices and some strategic uh, changes, um, but they've always ended up being for the, for the best. Do you feel like Compound Studio now has a more defined corporate culture? Yeah, I feel weird calling it corporate culture. Like I, I grew up like punk rock, you know, <laughs> so to call something a corporate culture is weird for me. But I mean, I guess that's probably the appropriate term. Yeah, I, I definitely think it, it does. Um, I think it's a lot more clear what people are getting into when they come work for us now. Could it improve? Probably, probably dramatically. And, you know, we're starting to work on those things like what are our core values, et cetera. Really tricky for a company like Compound, though, because Again, we have all the different brands and they all have their own identities. And even if you look at the teams, it's pretty crystal clear, you know, that there's a big difference team to team. Um, 
But yeah, I mean, I, I think it's getting better. So uh, you said people know what they're getting into. What, what are they getting into? I don't know. A little bit of madness, uh, a lot of creativity, and I think a lot of freedom, I hope. I think that uh, I think we're a pretty cool company to work for. We have a very, very low turnover, which is something we're pretty proud of. And, uh, you know, our first hire, Zach Fitiello, he's still with us, you know. So I think it's been eight years or nine years. Wow. Pretty wild to think about. You know, those brand pillars that we talked about, identity, figuring out who your target audience is, this is sort of the start of, of your brand ideation process. What other components of this process help bring a brand to market? Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think that's the key. So we start out with that, that archetype, that brand identity. We think about, we like to try to figure out, we, we like to think about one person. So, you know, if, if this was our customer, let's call them Amy, what would Amy wear? You know, what does she do? Does she wake up and go to SoulCycle and then, you know, uh, go get her Starbucks, et cetera? And if so, you know, what would that person wear? And that's literally how we build it out. So we start building out a product line to speak to that person. Um, so, for example, with Clocks and Colors early on, we had a couple people that we were referencing. One of them, interestingly enough, uh, was Travis Barker, who is mm. like, absolutely massive again and, and is bringing, uh, it, I would say is bringing pop punk back to the uh, forefront of culture. But, you know, eight years ago, I said, this is somebody that I really look up to. And I think we could build a brand that would speak to somebody like him. Um, and so we started designing products that we thought he would look good in. Vitaly, Clocks and Colors, Etta Love, Every Heart, big brand portfolio under under Compound. Have there been specific challenges that you've had to navigate? With each of these? Oh, man. I mean, thousands of incredible challenges, I would say. But, you know, some of the ones that really stand out. The ones that keep you up at night. Yeah, the ones that keep you up at night. Cash flow. You know, I don't don't know any entrepreneur that's not going to tell you that cash flow hasn't been a nightmare at some point. Um, You know, being bootstrapped, there's been a lot of moments where cash flow is a big issue. Um, I'm grateful, though, that we were bootstrapped because it forced us to be scrappy and always has. And it's made us really appreciate it when we do have cash flow. Um, also projecting for growth, it can be really, really challenging. You know, sometimes you start to hire really quickly because you've been growing at a certain pace and then that changes, you know, things can change like, you know, literally overnight, you know, uh, and there's an iOS update and all of a sudden you can't reach your audience anymore. That changes things quickly and you got to adapt. Right. So those things keep you up at night for sure. Um, suppliers, you know, out of nowhere, they tell you that they're going to be two or three months late. That's always a nightmare, but you just learn to adapt. Okay, so looking back uh, on your career as a, as a founder, you're over a decade in now. What, what advice would you give to your younger self or your younger entrepreneurial self? All right, two things. The first, drink less coffee. Um, when I started out, I was drinking so much coffee. It was cheap, and coffee's the best thing ever. Um, but it's already stressful enough starting a business. You don't need to be packing in caffeine. Like, it's no wonder I was you know, constantly mind-blowingly anxious. Um, but beyond that, I would say uh, don't chase the money. And like, I know that that sounds cheesy and cliche and all, you know, however you want to state that, but at least in a creative business, as soon as you start doing that, people smell it. You know, there's there have been periods where we got consumed by it. And, and to be fair, there's been really difficult periods where we weren't sure if we were going to survive and we thought we need to do what it's going to take, right? Um, but 
you know, truthfully, it's never been the right thing. Like as soon as we went back to doing what we really love and creating products that we're really excited about, that's when it did well. Shane, great story. Uh, thanks for sharing it. Thank you. Appreciate it. It's been a good chat.